0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring a chapter from Grey Tide in the East, An Alternate History of the First World War, written by Andrew J. Heller. On August 1st, 1914, Kaiser Wilhelm II cancels the German invasion of Belgium over the objections of his generals, sending his armies east against Russia instead of west to France, and sets off a chain of events that will radically change the course of modern history great tide in the east is the best-selling counterfactual history of the first world war if the germans had not invaded belgium in 1914 and thereby brought great britain and eventually the united states into the war the carefully researched story is told by a host of real historical figures both famous Williams Jennings Bryan and Winston Churchill, and obscure Albert Dawson and Just Van Volenhoven and spans the globe from Washington DC to Hanoi, from bloody battlefields to the secret chambers of diplomats. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Grey Tide in the East
1: Chapter two London, august fourth, nineteen fourteen. It was late afternoon, and the bright sunshine bathing King Charles Street was slanting down at a shallow angle through the window of his private office at Whitehall by the time Sir Edward Grey finally completed his last correspondence of the day. This was a note to his ambassador in Brussels, requesting him to forward any new information that was available concerning German military movements along the Belgian border. Grey shook a little sand onto the paper to absorb the excess ink, then carefully folded it and slid it into a foreign office envelope. He thoughtfully ran his thumb over the gold-embossed lion and, wishing that he could do more to aid his beleaguered French allies meet the looming European crisis than write notes to his ambassadors, placed the envelope in the battered red leather dispatch box that would carry it to Brussels. Gray had been appointed to his present post in 1905 and had been the foreign secretary ever since, serving in the liberal government of Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, then staying on under his successor Herbert Asquith. He had continued and broadened the European policies of his predecessors. In particular, he had strengthened the agreements with France and Russia that had been negotiated in 1904 and 1907 by Lord Lansdowne and Sir Arthur Nicholson, which together created the Triple Entente. This arrangement was not quite a formal alliance between the three countries. France and Russia had a true and binding alliance with each other, which included a military convention promising that each partner would go to war if the other was attacked by a third power. Great Britain had no such agreement with either France or Russia, or with anybody else for that matter. Gray would have things otherwise. He was a man of peace, who had no desire to involve his country in a war between great powers, which he believed would be a disaster for European civilization. But he also believed that if Great Britain was known to be firmly committed to the Franco-Russian Entente, this might be enough to cause Germany to back down, thus averting a crisis without resorting to war. On the other hand, if there was going to be a war, it was clearly not in Britain's national interest to allow the German-dominated Triple Alliance to prevail. The consequences of that would be... Gray's musings were interrupted by a knock on his office door. His private secretary said, "'Please excuse the interruption, Sir Edward. "'The French ambassador, His Excellency Monsieur Cambon, "'has arrived for his appointment. Shall I show him in?' "'This was a meeting that Gray had been dreading all day. "'A sense of guilt settled heavily over him, "'even though he knew he had done everything in his power "'to try to make the French alliance as solid as possible, "'and that the failure for this to materialize "'was not due to any lack of effort on his part.' Gray was one of the members of the faction in the cabinet who had been promoting closer ties with France for years. He and his group had all but promised the French that they could count on the Royal Navy to cover the French Channel ports in the event of war with Germany. They had even arranged joint general-staff talks and the preparation of a non-binding military convention between the two countries. Gray, along with everyone else, had assumed that when the war began, the Germans would provide a casus belli by invading Belgium, thus bringing in Great Britain under obligations the latter had undertaken as a guarantor of Belgian neutrality in the Treaty of London of 1839. It was common knowledge in European military and diplomatic circles that the Germans were planning to launch their invasion of France through Belgium. Certainly the Kaiser and his minions had made enough suggestive and threatening remarks to Belgian officials, up to and including King Albert himself, over the last few years to lead Grey to expect that the Germans would violate Belgian territory at the onset of hostilities. When that happened, Grey had been prepared to go to the House of Commons and ask for a declaration of war based on Britain's national interests, her treaty commitment to Belgium, and her national honour. Two days earlier, on August 1st, Gray had sent a note to the German ambassador to Great Britain, Prince Karl Max Lishnovsky. The contents were vague and promised little. This was for two reasons. The first was that Gray was painfully aware he had no authority from his government to commit Great Britain to any course of action in the Continental Crisis, even if Belgium was invaded. The second reason was that vagueness was Grey's preferred diplomatic style, He believed that the less precise one's language, the more room one had to maneuver as needed. It was practically his motto. Gray's note to Prince Lishnovsky had stated that he could guarantee England's neutrality if Germany would remain neutral as to both France and Russia. In other words, not go to war at all. This was not much of a commitment. In fact, it was really no commitment at all. Gray had not thought that this offer would make the slightest impression on the Germans. Instead, his innocuous pledge appeared to have induced the Germans to pull back their troop concentrations from the Belgian frontier and send their armies elsewhere. The German ambassador was known to be a strong advocate of peace, one of the few who had any real influence on his country's foreign policy. He wondered what Prince Lishnovsky had told his foreign ministry the German withdrawal from the Belgian border was, in Grey's view, unfortunate. Without a German invasion of Belgium, there was no possibility that Great Britain would enter the war, at least until the occurrence of some other equally compelling casus belli. The House of Commons would never agree to go to war on behalf of either the Russians or the French without some direct threat to British interests or obligations. Whatever the reason behind it, the withdrawal had been a clever stroke by the Germans yet had pulled the rug out from under Grey and his francophile allies in the cabinet. Now he was going to have to tell Ambassador Cambon that His Majesty's government was unable to commit to any definite action under the present circumstances, Grey muttered to himself. In other words, we plan to do a fair imitation of rats leaving a sinking ship, he finished bitterly. The French ambassador is here, sir, Grey's private secretary said. ''Show Monsieur Cambon in, please, Harrison,'' Gray said. Gray's secretary disappeared and then returned a few moments later to announce, ''His Excellency Ambassador Paul Cambon.'' ''Thank you, Harrison,'' Gray said, dismissing his subordinate. The private secretary bowed to Gray, then to Cambon, and left silently. Paul Cambon was a dapper figure, with short, wiry grey hair and a neatly trimmed beard and moustache. Gray considered the Frenchman more than merely a diplomatic colleague, but a personal friend. They had met at a party in 1895, just after Cambon had first taken up his current post, and the two men had developed an immediate liking and respect for each other. Since 1905, when Gray had taken over the Foreign Office, they had worked together closely, trying to arrange a military alliance between their nations, in vain as events had proved. Now the Frenchman stood before his desk, his body rigid, his face expressionless, his eyes fixed on Grey's. Grey himself felt unwontedly stiff and uncomfortable in his friend's presence. "'It is a pleasure to see you again, Paul,' Grey said. He gestured to a Louis Fourteenth armchair embroidered with hunting scenes. The chair had been a birthday present from Cambon on the occasion of Grey's 40th birthday. Please make yourself comfortable.' "'No, thank you, Mr. Foreign Secretary.' responded the Frenchman icily. My errand will not take long. Gray cringed inwardly when the other man addressed him formally by his office rather than his first name, as he had done for so many years. This interview, which he had been dreading all day, was turning out quite as badly as he had anticipated. Long years of diplomatic practice gave Gray the ability to maintain an impassive mask to hide the pain he felt, but he could not control the way his complexion paled. There was a long, uncomfortable silence. When Cambon finally spoke again, his voice was strained. "'I am here, as you must know, Mr. Foreign Secretary, "'to ascertain the position of His Majesty's Government "'with regard to commitments previously made by His Majesty's Government to France. "'Promises, mutual obligations between our governments, "'were made ten years ago, and have since been renewed and extended.' The time has come to make good on those commitments, now that Germany has declared an unprovoked war on my country. He paused. Grey waited, saying nothing. Does His Majesty's Government intend to place the Royal Navy on station in the English Channel to cover French ports as was previously arranged? Cambon demanded. What is the prospect of fulfilling the terms of the military convention between our countries? His Majesty's Government, was committed to landing the British Expeditionary Force in Channel Ports in cooperation with the left wing of the French Army. This was part of our mutual war plans. When will these troops be landing? The war has begun. Our plans must take into account the intentions and actions of our allies. There was another endless period of silence, which lasted perhaps three seconds. Grey knew that he had no satisfactory answer, "'that he had nothing to offer the anguished Frenchman. "'Surely, Paul, you and the French government understood "'that all those arrangements were on an informal basis,' he replied steadily. "'His Majesty's government has never undertaken a formal commitment "'to go to war alongside France. "'In point of fact, such a commitment would not have been approved "'by the Cabinet or Parliament, as you well know. "'All of these arrangements were contingent upon the occurrence "'of certain events over which we have no control.' The informal arrangements were the best that we could manage. Indeed, we had to take care to see that even these did not become public knowledge, lest we face a great outcry from little Englanders against continental entanglements. A military alliance with France, with any continental power, has never been a popular idea in this country. So His Majesty's government intends to stand aside and do nothing at this critical moment in history? "'Will you simply look on with arms folded while the German Empire comes to dominate Europe?' demanded the ambassador, his voice quavering with emotion. "'Because if you wait until after we and the Russians are crushed, it will then be far too late to do anything. The shadow of Prussianism will fall over the whole of the continent. What will His Majesty's government do then, with France and Russia defeated and prostrate, and a hostile German Empire supreme?' What will you do then, Mr. Foreign Secretary?' Grey's mouth tightened, but his voice was calm as always. It was a little unfair of Cambon to blame Grey for the apparent abandonment of the French by His Majesty's government. It was only because he and a handful of colleagues in the cabinet had insisted that anything at all had been done. As he had reminded Cambon, the informal understanding with France had been the absolute most they could achieve under the circumstances— The simple truth was that, if not for the informal arrangements, they would have had nothing at all. As events turned out, of course, that was exactly what they did have. Nothing. Still, he did not, could not in his heart blame Cambon. If their positions were reversed, Gray suspected that he would feel exactly the same way as the Frenchman did. Normally, Gray held as an article of faith that he was morally bound to support the positions of his own government. If he could not do so, then his personal sense of honour required him to resign rather than remain in office in a false position. But on this occasion, Grey's feelings of guilt were so strong that he felt compelled to violate his own rule by admitting to Cambon that his own views were at variance with those of the government he served. "'You know I wish it were otherwise, and that I believe we should come to France's aid in her hour of peril. But my personal feelings on the matter are of no consequence,' he said." "'It is the official position of His Majesty's government "'that a quarrel between Russia, Austria, Germany and France "'is not a matter of vital interest to Great Britain "'sufficient to constitute a casus belly. "'It is absolutely clear that neither in Parliament "'nor among the public is there any support "'for taking the country into the war "'under the present circumstances.' "'He sighed. "'I should tell you that two days ago "'a group of Liberal MPs voted nineteen to four "'to remain neutral,' even if Germany were to violate Belgium. The Cabinet has already voted twelve to six against going to war in support of France, and further decided not to even allow the fleet to take up war stations in the North Sea, for fear of provoking an incident with the German Navy. Mr. Asquith would never take a divided country into the war. Indeed, he could not, even if he wished to, as support for such a course does not exist in Parliament— We must await some new development before the Prime Minister can even consider putting the question to the House or the Cabinet. There is really nothing we can do but wait for new developments and hope. Ambassador Cambon burst out. Kaiser Wilhelm is not going to oblige us by invading Belgium. There is not going to be any new development. So what will happen now? Based on your country's assurances, all our military plans were arranged in common on the assumption that Great Britain would be fighting at our side. Those plans are now in ruins. Our general staffs have consulted, and you have seen our schemes and preparations. Our fleet has committed to the Mediterranean, and we have left our Atlantic coast wide open to the Germans, all because of British guarantees. If you abandon us now, France will never forgive you. After this betrayal, what will be the value of English promises, and what allies will rely on them in the future? Gray had no answers for the anguished Cambon. The fact of the matter was that he agreed with everything the Frenchman said. He subscribed to the adage attributed to his predecessor, Lord Palmerston, that Britain had neither permanent friends nor permanent enemies, only permanent interests. The most important permanent interest, the guiding star of British foreign policy in Europe for generations, had been to oppose the domination of the continent by any single power, and to ally with the lesser powers to prevent such domination. The British Empire had joined coalitions against the Habsburgs in the 17th century, against Louis XIV, the Sun King, in the 18th, and had headed the alliance that finally defeated Napoleon in the last century, guided by that same principle. Would she now allow the German Empire to succeed where the others had failed? As he accompanied the Frenchman from his office, he could only say, Let us hope that tomorrow brings better tidings. Cambon did not reply. Gray sat for a long time in his office after the French ambassador had left, reading new intelligence estimates from the war ministry about Belgium. Nothing he read gave him any comfort at all. Every source available to the British government, diplomats, military observers, and newspaper reporters, all told the same story. Massive formations of German troops were pulling out from the Belgian border— and boarding trains rolling off to... where? To the east, to Prussia, to fight the Russians was what nearly everyone thought. Gray pondered whether he should offer his resignation to the Prime Minister. He was strongly tempted to take some action to demonstrate his feelings, and he thought it would be a great relief to be rid of the responsibilities of the Ministry. In the end, he decided that resignation would amount to no more than a gesture, and would do nothing to change his country's course he was too responsible to commit such a rash act just to allay his personal sense of guilt. Long after evening had fallen and the street lamps on Downing Street flickered to life, Gray brooded over his meeting with the French ambassador. Cambon was right, he decided. Without British help, the Franco-Russian coalition would eventually be overwhelmed, and an aggressive, militaristic Germany, with a growing population, expanding industry and ambition to match, would come to dominate Europe. Then what will we do? Gray murmured aloud, echoing the words of the departed French ambassador. Then what?
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this sample chapter from Grey Tide in the East. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.